welcome to Head for Six, Sunday 28th of June, and it will most probably, excitingly, be our final episode recorded in, in lockdown proper. Next Saturday, 4th of July, shackles slowly being lifted. It's, it's our very own Independence Day, 4th of July, very fitting. And cricket, fingers crossed, is recreational and domestic level. Sadly, yet to get the green light, but maybe in the next couple of weeks, we might be able to get out and play some cricket ourselves, which personally can't wait for. Um, but before we do, uh, but actually before we introduce our very special guest this week, uh, Michael, this last week's been a big week for our podcast, hasn't it? What's happened? It has been good. Um, obviously, we had Mike Atherton on last week. It was amazing to have him on. It was really enjoyable for both of us, if not slightly surreal, but he was um, absolutely lovely to have on. And it has boosted the podcast slightly. People have been passing the pod. Um, and we're up to almost a thousand likes on our Facebook page and um, approaching a thousand downloads in total, I believe, Rob. Are we getting a bit of a global fan base, would you say? Um, sort of, yeah. I suppose if you target a, a cricket advert towards Pakistan and India, you're bound to get some enthusiastic take up. How many of them have listened? I'm not quite sure. But listen, we've had listens in Germany, in California, Australia, India, all over, but of course, mainly, mainly in the UK and among people who know us, but that's maybe hardly surprising. But yeah, Mike Athen last week was great, but following on from that, this week, we've got a, we've got a man joining us today who in fact played in Mike Athen's first ever test match against Australia in 1989, Worcestershire legend Tim Curtis. Tim, how are you and how have you been finding lockdown? Um, I'm fine, thank you, Robert. Um, lockdown is for people like me maybe just an extension of retired life um, lots of gardening now I can get out on the golf course sunshine was lovely initially have to say though getting a little bit frustrated now with the uh, you know the lack of the freedoms that one takes for granted on a day-to-day basis but uh, you know going to the pub is something that I would love to do and maybe we'll be able to do that before too long Oh, I know. Hey, well, the, I think it, pubs are something that will open, are opening on Saturday, aren't they? But it'll be, it's one of those yeah. ones where socially distant in the pub, if everyone wants to go down to the local, I'm not quite sure that's possible. So, yeah. uh, it's a bit of an oxymoron, really, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, after a couple of pints, I think people struggle to work out what a metre is, what two metres is. Suddenly, you know, and that's got your ruler with you. Yeah. But go on, so Tim, we were, Michael and I, just before we came on, we were watching a little video of Mike Aston talking about his test debut trapped LBW, second ball by Terry Alderman, and then the camera pans down to the other end to see you in a, in a nice, shiny white helmet looking just a bit gormless, really. And what, what are yeah. your memories of, of that test match, of uh, that Ashes, of, of your time playing for England? Um, well, that test match, I mean, I don't know, but probably looking at Mike Afton being LBW to Terry Alderman, I was probably thinking that you know, that's me. Um, and then sooner afterwards, I think it probably was because I got naught and one, I think, in that test match. And it was pretty dismal. But that test match had started with Australia batting. And they went through the first day without losing a wicket, Mark Taylor and Graham Marsh, I think. But the, I was at short leg, I'm pretty sure. And the very first ball of the day was delivered by Devin Malcolm. And you just knew that it was absolutely plump. Um, the response of everybody, but it was given not out. And then we went through the whole of the rest of that day without taking wicket and followed on. And it, it was dismal. Yeah, it, it, it was very, very poor. Um, that series was the series that year when the Rebel Tour to South Africa was announced during the 
Old Trafford test, which I think was the fifth test because I think it was a six-match series. Um, so that was another thing which sort of uh, I was working away in the background. There was the sense of harmony was difficult to achieve. We had I was one of twenty-six players that were selected that summer to play for England. So you know the experience there was was difficult. I remember at Old Trafford. I was batting over lunchtime and we met, uh, yeah, we were introduced to Prince Andrew actually at lunchtime on one of those days and Ted Dexter was, was chairing selection I think at that time and he took me on one side uh, to show me how to play the backward defensive shot. Um, he clearly spotted something that was lacking in, um, in my technique. He was a lovely man, Ted, a brilliant, brilliant cricketer. But that was just the kind of snapshot of the sort of rather random way that things seemed to happen in English cricket at that time. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think it was a 4-0 loss to Australia at home over six test matches. is probably endemic of maybe not, the, not England's finest summer of, of test cricket. Uh, one other quick question on that and on that clip. I noticed, and I noticed in all the photos I find of you playing cricket online, a white helmet. Now, I think if anyone who I come across who's playing wearing a white helmet in in club cricket in, in Surrey gets a lot of abuse for it. So did, was that something you copped abuse for at the time? Or was it White Helmet? I mean, it, it does feel like quite an 80s, maybe early 90s piece of gear. I think, I mean, you know me, Robert, I'm not, I'm not a fashion icon. I'm not going to be following a trend or establishing new ones. Um, I think that a lot of helmets were simply manufactured as white ones then. Uh, and there was less choice around. I, I, I did go to a green one. Um, at some stage, um, and I might have moved between the two. But in wearing a white helmet, I think you'll find that there were others around who were also wearing them at the time. And, and I don't know, maybe just a sense of, you know, cricketers wear whites, and this was an extension of it. Yeah, growing up and playing, there was this one kid and another on the local club cricket circuit who's his wicketkeeper for our local rivals, who always wore, you remember, he was the guy with the white helmet, who wouldn't mm-hmm. shut up, who wouldn't. And so obviously something that's kind of drifted out of, out of fashion as, as time has gone on. Um, before we do go any further, and I, I, I'm going to embarrass you here, Tim, I, for some of our younger listeners who weren't avid followers of county cricket in the late 1980s and early 1990s, they probably aren't aware of, honestly, how incredible your stats are, which was kept hidden from me by both you and my dad alike, to really the full extent of your... I mean, just really impressive numbers when it comes to particularly first-class cricket. So over 20,000 first-class runs, over 10,000 list-day runs, one-day cricket runs, passed 1,000 runs in a season 11 times. And not just personal success. Of course, you played in county championship-winning teams for Worcestershire, one day cup, even captain when you won it, I think it was in 1994. You were a, yeah. a key cog in a, in a golden era for Worcestershire. Do you think that, is that fair to say? It was certainly a golden era for Worcestershire. Um, you know, I regard myself as very lucky. We, we were a young side in the, in the mid 80s. Um, and then this young lad from Zimbabwe appeared in our nets uh, at the age of 17 called Graham Hick. And we watched him bat, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, he's 17. I will never be as good as him. Um, and I was seven years older than him, I think, at the time. And that was one of those bits of fortune. He'd gone, he was originally scheduled to go to Leicestershire. Leicestershire couldn't accommodate him. They asked us if we could, and, and so he ended up with us. 
And then after the Ashes tour down under in 86, 87, uh, Both had fallen out with Somerset and Graham Dilly with Kent, and those two arrived at Worcester as well. So, you know, we were lucky to get some, some high-profile players. We got a young team around or into which these you know, some megastars were inserted. And, and yes, we had a, a golden era, which started in, I think, 87. I think we won the, the what was then the Sunday League for the over competition. And then we won two championships. We won two knockout cups. We won, we won another Sunday League and a refuge cup, the sort of cup that came after the Sunday League. And it, and it was fabulous. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I played, I played a part in that. A good team, you know, you need your hot carriers, don't you, as well as everything else. And that was the sort of role, I suppose, I fulfilled. We played on some pretty rogue wickets at New Road in those days. And when you got Graham Dilley, Neil Radford, Phil Newport, Ian Botham, and then Stuart Lampett and Steve McEwen are very, very good seamers as well, and Paul Pridgen. You've got a good seam attack. You want to make sure that you can knock the opposition over. So the role of being a batter for me was about blunting the new ball, that sort of thing, and just keeping Hickey company because he was such a good player. He seemed to be able to rise above, you know, what the, whatever the ball might have been doing. But yeah, golden period. Very, very lucky to play during that time amongst some very good cricketers. And did you, when he, when he started your, your county career, your cricketing career, what were, you, what were your ambitions? So, you know, you leave school, obviously very good schoolboy cricketer, I imagine, go off to university. Are you thinking, right, university and off into the world of work? Or are you thinking, no, I want to be a professional cricketer and I'm going to be a professional cricketer and I'm going to play for England? Where, where was your kind of level of ambition and where did you see it all leading? I was that latter one. I mean, if, I think that's what every young dreaming boy do, does, isn't it? Um, yeah, I wanted to play cricket. I was completely obsessed with the game. Uh, and that path was county cricket. And then one dreamt of playing for England. So I went to university and I got a teaching qualification because that was keeping my parents happy because they understood the fickleness of professional sport. Um, and I was then incredibly lucky that having got a, a contract to Worcester, I was able to teach through the winter because in those days there were no 12-month contracts. Um, and that gave me a security, um, which was really important for peace of mind as much as anything else. But yeah, that, that was the ambition. That's what I wanted to do because that was the route if you were a cricketer, you went down to prove, to prove yourself, I suppose, to prove how good you, you could be and, and, and to achieve at the highest level. What was it like, Tim, um, combining studies and being a cricketer? Because it happens quite a lot less now. Players tend to go straight into the academies and then into the first team. And this combining studies at university while being a professional cricketer doesn't happen as much. No, you're right. I mean, Athers wrote a piece in the Times last week about the lack of first-class status, which will happen next season as far as universities are concerned. And I totally agree with with what he's saying there, it's increasingly become difficult to accommodate the two. I'll give you two short stories. One, when I was doing my finals at Durham University, Professor um, Dick Watson, who was head of the English department there, we had a game scheduled against Nottinghamshire, first time Durham had ever played against a first-class county, three-day game. Uh, and he agreed to come in and invigilate my final exam at six o'clock in the morning so that I could finish it by nine o'clock and get down to the race course for, for this game against Nottinghamshire. That was the head, head of the department. Now, the payoff for that was that incognito. I had then had to appear for the Durham University English Department staff cricket team against Newcastle University. Um, so that, that, that duly happened. 
which was quite funny because I played a low profile in that, but I bowled a couple of overs and one of the opposition smashed the ball incredibly hard back to me and I stuck a hand out and caught it and I think my cover was blown at that stage. But then at, Univ at Cambridge, I was doing my PGCE that we had a, an evening gathering. Uh, this was indicative of one attitude of the guy there. This was before we took our two final exam papers and this evening gathering took place. And he took me on one side and said that he'd recommend that I'd be failed because I hadn't attended some of the, um, the, the lectures during the course of that term. I'd done all the work I had to do, but I hadn't been able to get to the lecture. And I told him this in advance, and he recommended that I'd be failed. Well, I wasn't failed, um, which was fine, but just as an indication of how difficult it could be to combine um, academics with, with playing cricket, it, it kind of depended, I suppose, on the willingness of individuals within the universities to, um, to accept the fact that you, you were being called in different directions. Mm. I mean, that day when you're, you're starting an exam at 6am and then going on to play a full day of first-class cricket, you must have been knackered by the end of it. <laughs> well, you know what it's like on the day you finish your exams, you can, <laughs> you don't need to sleep or do anything at that time. I was just, you know, exhilarated. The whole, the whole thing was fabulous. I don't know how I did in the paper, whether it was, whether it was good or not, but um, I just thought it was an amazing gesture that um, this guy would do this for me. And it was typical of the my time in Durham, which was, which was very special, I have to say. So you won a one-day cup um, during this golden period of Worcestershire. Well, you won, it sounds like you won several one-day cups. How have, has it been interesting for you watching, particularly as an opener, one-day cricket evolve since your time playing? Would you say it resembles like a completely different sport now, or do you still see the, the connections? Um, clearly connections, but clearly differences. Yeah, I mean... One day cup, the one that we didn't win was the Nat West or, or Gillette, as it used to be, that was played traditionally in, in September and started at 10.30. And we rolled up for one in 88, I think, against Middlesex. And we went 11 for three after an hour because it was a green seamer and Angus Fraser was making the ball talk. And, you know, that's not something you see in, in one day cricket now because you play with a white ball, you play on straw-like flat pitches and the whole emphasis is on entertainment and the batsman smashing the ball out of the park so yeah it is it is very different we played the semi-final in the nat west in 94 the year we got to the final at the oval and we scored 354 which was a huge score in those days and tom moody and myself put on a large 309 i think and i mean tom contributed the large part of that but I, a little bit of boastfulness. I can remember facing Adam Hollyoak. Now, Tom was smashing it to all parts because he's a big fella and he hit the ball a lot further than I could. So I just had to pick out where I could find the boundaries. And I remember there was a short boundary down towards the new pavilion at the Oval. And I thought, well, he's not going very fast, Hollyoak. I reckon I could get down to one knee and, and sort of sweep him or paddle him down there. <laughs> um, and I did. And I, you know, looking back on it, that for me was was sort of an early stage of inventiveness which has obviously now moved on far beyond that so yes there are connections with the game now but certain factors have, have changed it massively and shorter boundaries apparently more powerful bats I know or perhaps the batsmen are better trained with their physical training and how they hit the ball in the same that with, with golf but the ball not moving around has made it makes a massive difference bowlers don't have much help do they no uh, and it's that's when 20 over cricket becomes like um, an unfair heavyweight boxing contest because there's just nowhere for the bowlers to go. Uh, and once you lose that sense of contest, then you are starting to talk about a slightly different sport. 
Yeah. And you do you see that very occasionally. Very, very occasionally you'll get a, a one day game or T twenty game where for the first two or three overs it swings. And actually suddenly you can find a team ten for three after two overs and sort of the cats among the pigeons. But it happens what, maybe once or twice a season at most across all the fixtures. And it, it often I mean I was watching uh, highlights and going down one of these YouTube rabbit holes trying to keep me sane during lockdown of England's world record score against Australia in that one day game what, two summers ago. Yeah. Nearly 500. And you kind of, you see Alex Hales just walking out and some second, second ball planting one over <laughs> properly into Rosette for six. And you think, I mean, like the Australia's bowling tank, it wasn't fantastic. It was a lot of their second choice guys, like Stan Lake and Richardson, rather than your Cummings and Hazelwood and, and Stark or whatever. But yeah, these are these are good bowlers. It should be a proper contest in bat and ball, and it's basically an exhibition of six hitting. Um, I do think I, I do think though that when the pressure's really on, even in recent one day cricket, it sometimes results in these lower scores because players suddenly lose this feeling of freedom that they can just hit it everywhere. And I think the World Cup last year is a pretty good example of that there were a fair few low scoring games in that and I actually think they make some of the best to watch as a spectator the really tight low scoring thrillers somewhere that scores between 200 250 they can be edge of your seat stuff to watch I find rather than just you're right Michael and you've got the contest there haven't you um and both sets of players can win the game the bowlers can win the game and the fielders can uh, sorry the, the batters can win the game um, but it's interesting, isn't it? That essentially played on what was being described as a poor pitch at Lords. Uh, but yeah, it, it produced absolutely unbelievable drama and, and, and tension. It was fantastic. Yeah. Can we just um, just going back a little bit, Tim? Just you were talking mm-hmm. about when you, with the that series against Australia, the slightly tough one, the four nil loss. You said at the time yeah. the South Africa Rebel Tour just being announced. Was it quite difficult being in the changing room at that time? Was there quite a lot of uncertainty between the players? Because, I don't know, were some of the players picked to go on that or had already those players been dropped because they'd agreed to go on the tour? What was the atmosphere like during that? I, th- I found it difficult. I, I think I would probably describe myself as maybe more sensitive, um, overly sensitive uh, to things and maybe therefore more aware of it. It was... I think there were two, it was either two or three players that were playing in the old Trafford Test match who went on the South Africa tour. And we all knew that this announcement was coming. And we were, I think we all knew that there must be somebody who was playing in that Test match who would then not be playing in the next Test match because they would be banned. Mm. Um, so, I mean, the thing, one of the things that always stuck out for me from that series was how the individual players and I would include myself in this every time at an interval, they'd be checking the scores of their respective counties. Um, now clearly at that time in 89 and 88, the two years when I played for England, Worcestershire were involved in, in a, a campaign that would ultimately see them win the county championship as were Essex um, and Kent. So there were a lot of people there who had a vested interest in that, but I just thought it was indicative of the time that really mm. I felt that people's main interest lay in what their counties were doing. Uh, and that the England sort of thing was almost incidental to that. And what needed to happen, and Athers again had identified this very accurately, we needed to go to central contracts. English mm, yeah. cricket needed to be made a priority. And you needed to get that balance between the national body, the national team and the provincial teams sorted. 
in the same way that you have that sort of ongoing battle in, in a rugby environment as well, and indeed football to an extent. It's probably stopped the sort of lottery-like selection of players where 25 players get picked in a series. Yeah, it was crazy. It was media-driven. You know, people got uh, built up by the media and, and seemed to then get picked, but that never, you know, you've got to pick people on the basis of the enduring qualities, not, not sort of temporary blips or indeed good runs of form. Interesting, Tim, what you say about that balance between county cricket and the national team and that the players were very focused on how their counties were doing during that time. And you feel that certainly over me and Michael's time and memory as England cricket fans over really the 21st century, county cricket and its importance or how much it's spoken about and its value feels like, unless you are, have an affinity to a particular county and really support and care about how they're doing, seems to have waned a bit, declined a bit. Where, where do you see the, the county game at the moment? There's this narrative maybe that it, yeah, it's not as popular as it was, it's on a decline, 18 counties, is it financially sustainable? Where do you see the domestic professional cricket in, in England these days? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question and it bounces backwards and forwards. Um, ironically, before the COVID-19 uh, pandemic struck and the effect it had on finances, it looked like county cricket was going to be made financially secure by the new 100 competition. And the money was promised to the counties and indeed received by the counties or some of it. Um, and that was going to mean that the counties could then move forward. Now, if they move forward without financial problems, if they became, become self-sustaining, you've seen some counties who've been able to achieve things. I mean, Somerset have built their flats, Worcestershire's built their hotel, uh, and the, uh, the counties are working towards models where they're making their grounds work and, and become financially viable. Once that becomes um, secure, then one would hope that the focus on cricket makes sure that it focuses on the right areas. Because... I believe that counties have been self-serving over the years and they haven't done what they need to do. Counties have existed, been able to exist financially because of the donations made to them by the ECB. That means that the England counties' priority should always have been to produce English qualified test match cricketers or international cricketers. That has to be their number one priority. And I, I think that focus has been lost over the years. We've had a lot of imports of, of non-qualified English players. And obviously the Colpac situation has been a significant part of that. And I think the focus on developing quality English qualified players has, has been lost. And that has frustrated and annoyed me over the years. Um, so I would like to think that moving forward, that focus, um, that focus would, would, would change somewhat. Um, that's a sort of slightly roundabout way to answering the question. I mean, if you started again from now, you wouldn't have 18 first-class counties playing professional cricket in this country. You would have teams that would cover a large area and you would have fewer of them. And you would, that would enable you to concentrate the talent that much more. Um, and that more concentrated pool should therefore produce the competition, which will produce your hardened, your better players. But we have got 18 first-class candidates, and I don't think the ECB has got the will or the desire to change that historical situation. So it is manageable. It's not ideal. Uh, and I think we will continue to go forward as we are, assuming that counties get financially through this current problem. On that then, with the, the 18 counties, if 
granted, I can't see the ECB suddenly cutting a, a Leicestershire or a Gloucestershire or whatever. But if all power in English cricket was in Tim Curtis's hands alone, in a, in a full sort of dictatorship style, would you cut counties? Would you trim them down? Would you, dare I say, combine them? Or, or, or would you leave it as it is yourself, if all power was up to you? I went through a phase um, actually around the time I was finishing, so maybe that was easy for me to think in those terms because I was finishing and I wouldn't be there to carry the consequences. I went through a phase there where I definitely felt that um, counties should be amalgamated and we should be moving to a nine or ten team competition. I felt that made more logical sense. Uh, I'm a little older and maybe a little wiser now and one has to realise that you are not going to get an ideal situation you have to take account of different um, interests uh, and I would therefore be looking at what we've got uh, the 18 counties and I would be looking at a at a conference situation um, because I think that might produce a, a better all-round situation we've gone now to 10 teams playing in the first division and eight in the second division is that going to be an atrophying effect where the eight, two or three are actually going to drop off the bottom there? Um, I don't know. One of the things that worries me is that the impact of overseas players and the availability of test match players can have a disproportionate effect on a season for one year. And so you get a side that will peak for a year and then diminish according to who's there, whether their overseas recruitment has been successful or, or otherwise. So I'm not convinced that the 10 and the eight is, is necessarily going to work. Three sixes with a seeding situation from the previous year. I think that that would be something I'd be I'd be looking to try if I had all that power. I mean, interesting. The three sixes, you'd imagine, therefore, you'd have what less crickets, less first-class cricket, fewer games because you're only playing you know a smaller circle of, of teams. What's that born out of? There's too much cricket, or the cricket is because there's so much of it, it becomes less less high quality. So you get a likes of Darren Stevens at Kent taking silly numbers of wickets bowling about my pace in his mid forties. <laughs> I'm not sure that, I mean, yes. Okay. So if we do the maths, you, you're playing 10 matches in each conference, are you? If you play each team home and away, but what I would then like to do is to go into a, a knockout phase towards the end of the season. Mm -hmm. Now the maths on that is, you know, our numbers don't quite add up because 18 is not a great number to start with. You want something that is divisible by four, don't you really to, to work that effectively. Uh, but I think you could nevertheless work something out which would involve a knockout situation. I think that would be quite, uh, that would be a boost as well because everybody likes a knockout competition uh, and a lot of other competitions are based on that with, where you have a league which culminates in some kind of then playoff situation. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily be looking to, to, to reduce the amount of cricket. I think we've probably got down to a reasonable level and it frustrates me that so many four-day games finish in two or three days because the quality of the pitches has not been necessarily monitored um, as well as it could be uh, and that has always been a key factor in terms of the quality of cricket you play. If you play on a pitch which has bounce and carry, you produce good cricketers. If you play on something that nibbles around, you don't produce good cricketers. Your circumstances are completely different. I was going to say pitches are key, especially when you talk about Darren Stevens, Rob. And also you talk about Tim County's not producing cricketers for England. I mean, it's very hard to produce cricketers for England, batsmen with solid technique if they're just playing on these green tops. And Jesse Ryder, I remember Jesse Ryder one season just um, being the top wicket taker in the country, just bowling at 70 um, for yeah. Essex. 
Um, so that's really important. Just um, going back to your England days, Tim, obviously you, you were lucky enough to play against Australia and then the, the small matter of West Indies in their prime. Oh. Um, so not the best lot for being an opener. But who was the best player you ever played against, would you say? The best bowler? Yeah, yeah, yeah best bowler. It could be county days as well, obviously. Um, as you can probably imagine, I've been asked the question before and, and historically my answer has always been Richard Hadley playing for Knotts. I mean, he had some pretty bowler-friendly pitches to play on at Knotts, but I just always had the impression with Hadley that he never bowled a straight ball. He was always doing something with the ball. And I, th- I felt he was a, a master practitioner as a, as a bowler. I mean, he had some very close... Uh, there, were, there were other bowlers around who were very, very good as well. Um, but he was the one that I seemed to face a lot and um, that stood out for me. And then from a batting point of view, I mean, I'm clearly biased, but I stood at the other end watching Graham Hick bat an awful lot. And I was very sad what happened to him initially when uh, he got into the England setup. I wish he'd got into a setup that was more clearly established and the sort of setup they've got nowadays, because I think he would have flourished. He needed to be loved and uh, he needed to be cherished. And when he played for Worcester in his, in his days as a young man, uh, and he played against some fantastic bowlers at the county level. He was such a dominant player. Um, yeah, he, he was very special, I have to say. But you know, I was lucky, privileged to watch a number of very, very special players. I remember being incredibly impressed by Mike Gatting as a batsman. Gooch obviously was just so dominant um, mm. against us. I remember Tom, Tom Moody used to bowl a bit for us, bowl some seamers. And he had an LBW appeal against Gooch once and it, I have to say it did look pretty straight but Gooch didn't tend to get given out too much and you expect Moody as an Australian to be a bit like Merv Hughes and all sort of um, big gestures and loud voice and a few expletives <laughs> and he got this turned down and Tom just turned back to the umpire and said oh that really is most unfortunate and <laughs> for this to come out of a six foot seven inch Australian just seemed completely wrong so yeah, these were these were fabulous players, and you know, privileged to watch Viv batting as well. Or what he that we played against him at Somerset. Alan Warner, who went to Derby as well, decent bowler. Warner was skiddy, bowled a good bounce. He, he bounced Viv early on, a bit of West Indian rivalry going on there, and Viv skied it. And we're watching this ball coming down to be caught by the keeper, and all the time I'm seeing the umpire's arm stood out to the sides because he was a no ball. And you, you just know that if you give him a chance like that, he's going to smash you the rest of the day, which, which happened. So, yeah, I was privileged to play with a lot of good players. And because a lot of the top players could play in county cricket then, they weren't limited by overseas contracts, you know, international contracts, which, which spanned the whole year. Yeah, there's, there's, it's an interesting balance that. There was, BBC did a poll recently of the, you know, the best overseas players in county cricket and Vivrick's yeah. my landslide. But when you looked at so many of the names and how much county cricket they played in this country, guys like Clive Lloyd or Richard Hadley, Malcolm Marshall, and you know, the list can get on and on and on. You know, that isn't there so much, but you do get these, these cold pack players. It seems to be we almost get the worst of both situations at the moment with overseas players. We don't get the the real quality to, for, let's say, the, the modern-day equivalent of yourself to cut their teeth against Malcolm Marshall, Richard Hadley, and then go and play some test cricket. There isn't that option. But then at the same time, maybe young English players aren't getting the same opportunities because it's full with journeymen 
international players of a, a Jacques Rudolph or Carl Abbott or whatever whoever it might be. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment, Tim? I think it's a very fair assessment, yeah. Um, and this is where, I mean, you see it in all professional sport, don't you? The same patterns are occurring where t- teams will look to overseas players and bring them in as established players, not having to take a chance on developing somebody who is is younger. It's therefore very gratifying when you see a county or another sporting team that develops their own players. I mean, Worcestershire have brought on some very good young players over the course of the last few years, and we've had to because we're not a financially strong uh, county. And we've also taken that as a decision, that that, that is what we will do. Um, I mean, we recruited Wayne Parnell a couple of years ago, and that required a lot of soul-searching to actually make that decision to do that. But it, we still left us regularly playing eight or nine players who'd come through our own academy development. Um, and one or two of those have gone on to certainly have represented young England and one or two sort of getting close to, to moving on beyond that. Obviously, Pat Brown being the latest one that's come through on the, on the one day bowling side of things. So um, it is a factor. And I think that that's where I'd go back to what I said earlier on, that the counties need to make sure that their first priority is to develop um, English qualified talent. Now, their main argument for recruiting overseas is that they say that that means that the overall level of cricket is elevated by that and that leads to a situation where only the better players will come through but it does run the risk as you've indicated that people simply don't get the opportunities in the first instance so just um so just finally tim uh, we've got got a few minutes left on our zoom allocation looking looking to today's time during during covid and the financial impact that's having on the counties can you see all of the counties being able to get through this period? Because obviously it's incredibly tough financially for a lot of them and for the ECB. But with cricket now coming back to us through the test, they're going to save. They're going to get a bit of their money back that way. Do you think the counties will be okay? Um, I know that the ECB have been very shrewd over the years in terms of maintaining a strong level of reserves. I think they always had this worry that if a test match series were cancelled for any reason, what that would mean to their annual income. So in a way, they have actually prepared for what has exactly happened this year. Now, they ultimately are the ones who will determine whether the counties will go under or not, um, because if the county is really struggling, it'll be to the ECB that the counties turn in order to, to gain um, funding either on a short-term basis to see them through or on a longer-term basis. I'm no longer directly involved with the running at Worcestershire, so I can't speak from personal experience of that particular county. Um, I know that the players were furloughed, so I presume that that has offset um, part of the financial hit. I don't know how successful... I've, I've been party to what the club has been trying to do in terms of its membership, and I don't know how successful they have been in terms of persuading members to effectively make this year's uh, membership payment a donation. You know, they were clearly going to take a financial hit. I suspect the counties will survive because I suspect the ECB will be able to just bail them out and keep it going through. But I'm curious also to know what's happening with the television rights because, I mean, we were supposed to be, uh, this was supposed to be the first year of the 100 and it was the money from the television rights for that competition that was funding the counties in the, in, the, in the money that they had been promised. So I presume that the, the payments from the television rights will have been altered in some way. Uh, whether it's just been deferred a year or not, I'd push back here, I don't know. 
Uh, difficult, challenging, but I suspect the ECB will be able to ride it out. Well, let's, let's hope so, because we, I mean, for all sports, and I get daily emails from Harlequins, you know, they're very keen for us to kind of commit to next season, all the rest of it, to pay our membership subs so that, yeah, the club has enough cash in the bank to, to ride it through without heading to the RFU, but if need be, again, bail them out. But I, I, sadly, it's a question facing many businesses and many industries on all walks of life, because when the economy ground, grinds to a halt for three and a half months, there are sadly repercussions. Um, that is sadly all we have time for. And Tim, it's been great to have you on. Thank you so, so much. And uh, yeah, stay safe and, and hopefully see you soon. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Tim. Well, that was good, wasn't it, Rob? It was great. Yeah, it was really fun talking to Tim about his, his cricket career, time with England, thoughts on county cricket, all sorts of things. I, I did realise, though, the moment we finished, that I, I hadn't made it clear to our legions of listeners that I'm related to Tim. He's my uncle. Well, he's married to my mum's youngest sister, so uncle-in-law, if you like. So that's how we know him. But it was, it was great. To, it was, yeah, it was really interesting to hear his thoughts, particularly, I, I always love talking to him about counter cricket and his, his thoughts on that, because obviously he's been involved in it for, for so long. I thought before we started, he was going to be quite a, a reactionary pro 18 counties, keep it as it is, the system's fine. Uh, but far from it. He had, he had quite a few ideas and even espoused some quite revolutionary thoughts of possibly amalgamating counties, although he did say he'd gone off that idea of late. What were your thoughts on I that? Thought, I thought it was a brilliant idea he had of uh, splitting it into smaller groups, having become some kind of a knockout thing. I think that would entirely reinvigorate it. Um, I think I, I really liked his idea, actually. It's not something I've ever thought of. And we've definitely spent enough time ruminating on this. And we've never come up with anything as good as that. So it shows <laughs> if you actually have the experience of playing in it, then, yeah, you probably have a better idea than just us two waffling on. Um, yeah, I, would, no. I mean, I'd love to have... I'd be very keen to have him on maybe next year as the 100 starts because we didn't get a chance to talk to him about his, his thoughts on the 100 as a competition. And obviously he talks about it. It's kind of the, the financial viability it should offer the county cricket, which is a really important part of it. But the whole 100 balls, a 10 ball over to finish, it would be nice to hear his thoughts on that, but, but maybe another time. But like you said, not reactionary. You know, the fact that he could see that positive side of the 100 shows he's clearly thought about it. Um, and I think also, we should just re-emphasize quite how good a player he was before we sign off. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I, I didn't say this at the time, but I, I remember going to New Road with him and my dad, uh, maybe five years ago or so. I, was, I was, must be 18 or 19, for a one-day game, Worcestershire, Gloucestershire, spent a day with them there. And I went to the Luz, and as I came back, there's a mural on a wall, sort of on one of the more modern stands, of these pictures of, I mean, mural's not quite right, but there's lots of pictures of like, great Worcestershire players through the years on a timeline, and there's statistics. And you've got you know, Tom Graves, who's there, Graham Hickey, and both, and whatever. And then there he is, Uncle Tim. 20,000 first-class runs at an average over 40. And I went back and sat next to him and said, Tim, you're a gun. Where has this come from? Yeah, you should be shouting this from the rooftops far more because apart from a, a couple of photos in the downstairs loo, you know, it's not something that... He's, he's a very modest man. He's a lovely man. And he's not, he doesn't make a big deal out of the fact that he really was one of the best opening batsmen in county cricket for like a, new, a really long period of time, 15 years or so. I was going to say as well, like, I think his style was... Um, you know, fairly sensible defensive. And with those stats and that style, he would be straight into our test team right now, wouldn't he? He'd be a fixture of it. 
Oh, um, I mean, I, I mean, I always pushed them. If we were doing our, the best England team of the last thirty years, I'd be, I'd be calling for them to be in there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really good fun. And just um, if anyone's wondering what on earth is going on right now, this is something new. We're trying a little recap where we talk about the lovely pod we've just had on our guests. And yeah, we both really enjoyed that one. Yeah, it was, it was good. And we've got, a, we've got a couple more guests coming up. We won't say who they are quite yet uh, in case they bail last minute. But, but a, another England test cricketer and prominent broadcaster to come in the, in the next couple of weeks. And of course, next week, we'll be having a look at the start of the test series against West Indies, which is going to be really, really exciting. And great to have some actual cricket to discuss rather than reminiscing and eking out hours of listener time for our, for our listeners when there isn't current cricket to, to discuss, either domestic or, or international. No, I can't wait. Brilliant. Well, all the best, Michael. I'll catch up with you again next week. And yeah, have a good one. Cheers, Rob.